spoke, um, I I brought out, and I thought it was to me it was important to to speak on the fact that you know I've been in the church for fifty six years, I believe now, and um, and I've done a lot, I've served a lot, and I've known a lot of individuals who also have served and been been there on the firing lines there, so to speak, and they prayed and, and all that. And I want to bring out the fact that at that time, and I don't know how well it went, but to think about the fact that no matter how many years we have in the church, whether it's just one or two or 55 or 60 or 70, whatever it gets to be, we don't want to be in that position that God says to us, I don't know you. And that's, a, to me at that time, was a very, very scary thing to think about. There was a couple of uh, scriptures I didn't bring out, but I thought about the one in Matthew 22 where it's talking about a marriage. And, and it's something for us to think about. It says that there was a king who performed a marriage for his son. And... He invited a bunch of guests. Some could. They had all excuses. They had their excuses. Everybody has excuses for why they don't do what they do or why they did what they did. There's always excuses. But anyway, he went ahead and uh, the ones he invited didn't come. He told them, find somebody else. And so the servants went out and gathered a lot of people and brought them in. And so the wedding was set. And, and this is what to think about. Here the wedding was set. We're going to be part of the wedding. Matthew 25 talks about the same thing about a wedding and that five were ready and five weren't. And so here he set this wedding and he went in and talked to the guests. And he noticed that one of the guests didn't have the right clothes on. Now I can relate to that because a number of years back, I went to the wedding of one of my children, and everybody came dressed for a wedding, except one guy. He showed up with no shirt, shorts, and no shoes, no socks. And, it, and I felt that was, that was such an embarrassment to the child that was getting married, to the, both of them that were getting married that this person would come and I thought, I don't want to be that way either. Because in the case here, uh, the here it is, God says, why don't you have the right clothes on? Now, why aren't you prepared? And in this case, in Matthew 22, verse 12, he says, and the man was speechless. So, you know, if you, if you think about that, you're gonna to go to be, you want to be a part of that, that wedding with Christ. And you want to be prepared for that. And he's going to be pretty upset, or you will be pretty upset. He, he would be upset if you come up there and you're only half dressed. And I know I was upset that this guy was there. It was embarrassing to, the two getting married, to my wife, to me, and to a number of other people. But he was supposedly a friend 
of the bridegroom. And I thought, what kind of a friend is that? Anyway, that made me think when I read that. You know, Christ said, not everyone in Matthew 7.21, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So here was a guy that should have been thrown out. He said, either you leave now or we get the law to take you away. Because we can't, we don't have the, the, the tools and stuff that we can shoot them or whatever or beat them down or anything. But, but here, here, not everybody should be there. And are, are we all preparing? You know, God has set standards. Wedding clothes. The right garments. Those are standards that God has put out there. We know that everybody that wants to be a part of the kingdom, if they don't have and can, and are not meeting up with those standards that God says, He's going to say to you, I don't know you. <laughs> Why are you even here? You notice in 1 Corinthians 13, I'm just going to read through some of this, just because I don't want to get, I don't need to read all of it. In Matthew 13, God set a standard, and uh, He shows that not everybody can fit the standard that He put up there. In verse 1, He says, because here's a person that is a great speaker. He's got the ability to convince a lot of people to, to do whatever they want, what he wants to do. I've been, I've been to places where that, some of these, uh, pick yourself up bootstrap type services or, um, where you join this to make millions of dollars and so you have to invest a lot and you get nothing back. I mean, that's the bottom line. I mean, you think you're going to make a lot, but the guy that's doing the speaking can so convince you that you ought to be in this program. You ought to be doing to it. And, and he says to the people that can speak, they're great at speaking. He says, but I am, but I am become as sounding brass. He says, look, just because you're great at speaking, my standard you're, you're still part of my standard that you're not, you're not coming up with. So because uh, you're this great speaker, you're nothing more than a brass sounding, you know, a trumpet or a cymbal or a drum or, or a guitar or something. That's all you are. You're, you're nothing. And two, he said, if you have the gift that you can, you can understand anything. I mean, you just, you've had the background you read great, you, you grasp things with the, with the greatest amount of integrity. And, but he said, if you don't have godly love, you're absolutely nothing. You haven't fit the standard that I set. And if you can't fit that standard, you're not, you're just not there. And verse 3 says, if, you, if you're the person that you're giving, and you have a lot of money and you bestow everything. You go out there and help poor people. You see them on the side of the road out here nowadays and say, uh, I'll work for food or, or I need some gas money or, or whatever. And you have the money and you have the capability of, and you can just feel like you're really doing a lot of good things. But Christ said, if you don't have godly love, 
So it's something that's inside your heart. It's a depth of understanding. He said, all that giving, all that charity that you do, doesn't mean anything. And that's why we go back to what I said earlier. We think we've done so much in the church. And I've been down that road. I've watched people work hard to become a deacon and work hard to become an elder. And where are they today? They're going back to Protestantism. Christ said, if you have tasted of this good life, and go back, go back to some other way, go back to where you were, your chances of being a part of the family of God are slim to none. You cannot crucify Christ again. So, we have, uh, we got to have a, a depth of, of confidence, a depth of something in us that makes us more profitable to God than just being a speaker or a singer or a a rich person that can help and pick people up or or can can grasp different things and explain them. And I've seen that. I, I knew a person there in Houston. He could tell you the scriptures. He had tons of scriptures memorized in his head, but he didn't understand them and he didn't live by them. And he was a deacon. And I don't know where he is today, but I just know that he he missed something. In Matthew 7, verse 13, it says that that standard that God has is a very restricted or narrow standard. It said narrow is the gate that leads to to eternal life. But broad, it's easy to go any other way. It's easy to go back into the world. It's easy to, to, to do whatever you want to do. And it's hard to do what God has set for us to do. So, what does God want from us? What does He want? What does He want from a human being? There's, there's something that God's looking for specifically from each one of us. Now, we we can look at somebody else and set a standard. I talked with somebody the other day, and I said, you know, we have a tendency to look at each other and see the faults or the directions they're going in, and, and we can say, you know, you ought not to do it that way, or you ought to do it this way. or But what we need to do, and God says, work out your own salvation. So it means we need to look at our own life and see what... God wants from me? You ask that question, what is God actually looking for from me? In Romans 12, verse 2, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul speaking, inspired by God to write, be not conformed to the world, this world. If, to, to concentrate on that. Don't conform to the world. You know, it's one thing you see people doing something else and you you have a tendency, if it's an argument, you have a tendency to argue back with them. And I've told my kids, I've told others, don't lower yourself to their standard. 
So if you conform to the standard of this world, you're not conforming to the standard of God. He goes on, verse, but be you transformed, or, you know, in electronics, we, we change electricity, the output of electricity from a low voltage to a high voltage, or a high voltage to a low voltage. That's what it means. It's changing it to, to something usable. So don't be, you know, be you transformed by what? Renewing your mind. We do that every day in prayer and I know sometimes our prayers are not they don't go any place it depends you I know you, you have you have good days and bad days we're human but you you got to renew your mind you can get uptight the next morning you wake up you know it's a new day you renew your day you renew yourself you try to make changes in what you've been doing and he goes on that you may prove by, by going back, looking at your, you know, that's why I say prayer, meditation, uh, fasting, you, 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 you meditate, you go back at night, sit down, and think, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Can I change that? Can I make it a different thing? And sometimes it's hard to change. Things are hard. Uh, Herbert Armstrong said it's easier to obtain something new than to change an old, an old pattern. Whole patterns are really sometimes very difficult to change. But here he says, renew your minds that you may prove by studying, by concentrating on what you did the day before, and prove what is good. What is the standard? He says, good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is God's standard? You only know that. That comes God's standard. And we have a series of sermons online called the Stand God's Standard or Standard of God. Great sermons. Good for us to to think about. In Matthew four, three through eleven, you read the the time where Christ was confronted by Satan. And we renew our standard by resisting Satan. Christ set the standard there. He didn't argue with Satan, did he? He never argued with Satan. He just pinpointed the Scriptures. You live by every word of God. Ephesians 4, 27, you can just write them down. These are just preliminary. Neither give place to the devil. So we don't want to... We want to, we don't want to be conformed to the world, so if we're not going to conform to the world, we cannot give place to Satan. And let me tell you, he's tried to get to everybody. We know that Christ spoke to Peter and said, Peter, Satan is trying to get to you, but I prayed for you. So, he, Satan's trying to get to each and every one of us. Ephesians 6.11 says, Put on the whole armor of God. Go through that. See what those that armament is. That helps us to resist Satan. And in First Peter five, you can turn there. First Peter five. First Peter five, verse eight. Be sober. Well, you know, not doing not thinking very much 
be sober, be vigilant, meaning getting out there and putting your mind to it. Because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he can devour. He will take you if he can. So you've got to have that armament that we talked about just a little bit before there. Or Satan's going to get a hold of you. Resist steadfastly in the faith. Because there are things going to try to pull you away. They're going to try to turn you from the right direction, from God's standard. Knowing that, uh, let's see, let's see, rolling my walking about, seeing who can devour, whom resist steadfastly, knowing that the same <coughs> afflictions and accomplishments in your brother around the world. So we're not alone in the fact. Sometimes we think, oh, we just, we get, we're, we're just hurt more than anybody else, or we have problems more than anybody else. No. So what does God want from us? How can we combat these problems that seem to constantly come down at us all the time? Well, first of all, and and basically what we're going to do is we'll think about being committed to something. People today, they, they think they're committed to to this or that. They'll, you'll hear people say, well, I'll be there. Do you, read them, do, you, do you think you've made a commitment when you say, hey, I'll be there and you don't show up? What happens then? What happens if you say to somebody, I'll pay that bill. Maybe you go to a restaurant or maybe you... You bought a part uh, for something. You say, I'll pay that bill, but you just seem to forget and let it slip. Are you committed? God wants us to be committed to Him, but He wants us to be committed to each other too. We know that Matthew 25, when Christ brought out, He said to them when He told them, if I was sick or I'm hurt or... I have all these problems. And they said, well, when did we see that? And he pointed out, when you see one of the least, the person that we look down on and think that that's the least, if we do it to that person, and we, and we categorize people, you know, we, we find faults with each other. And, and sometimes we don't think that Christ said, if we treat anybody that's why we're treating God, especially in the church, brothers and sisters, friends, relatives. How do we treat each other? So here he's saying, if, if I say I'll pay a bill and you don't, how are you treating your brother? Well, you're treating it that way with God. You know? Maybe you say, hey, I won't tell anybody that. I, I can keep good secrets. And then you tell everybody. What kind of commitment did you make to that person? Or maybe you say, trust me. I hear that a lot, don't we? Trust me. Well, sometimes it's very difficult to trust each other (laughs) because we can't commit to what we say. God already told us in the Scriptures, and we've heard it over, over and over again, that you do, if you make a commitment... You fulfill that commitment even if it's to your hurt. Even if it's to your hurt. 
So I'm going to look at some points. I got seven points on what it means to be committed. What does it mean to you when you say, I'm going to commit myself to God. I'm going to commit myself to what God has doing. So point one, if you're going to be committed or have a deep commitment to somebody, it's being dedicated. How dedicated? You know, you studying the Bible. That takes dedication. Prayer takes dedication. I used to think back in the 70s, God says I, I'm to give 10%. So I thought, well, maybe 10% of my day I got to have in prayer and Bible study and, and, and meditation. And that's pretty hard when you have an eight hour day job and you got two hours, uh, hour and a half to get there, an hour and a half to get back, and then you got housework, things to do around the house. But are you dedicated to do that? And I can remember, you know, having to get up at five o'clock every day. As things go on, years pass, sometimes our dedication becomes weak. I have one, one scripture of a person that, um, showed dedication. And that's Ruth. You'll probably find loose before I will. Ruth. The book of Ruth. Here's a girl that showed us some dedication. Ruth, chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 6. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 6. Now here we find before that where Naomi and her husband Elimelech went to another country because things were hard and Elimelech, her husband died. She had two sons and they married two of the Moabite girls. And the two sons died and now uh, Naomi said she might as well go home and here in verse 6 and then she arose Naomi after the death of her sons with her two daughters-in-law that she returned to the country of, uh, that she might return from the country of Moab for she had heard that the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited the people in, in her own country giving them bread so she wanted to go home Wherefore, she went forth out of the place where she was, her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. And the Lord dwell kindly with you, and as you have dwelt with the dead and with me. So here, Naomi was feeling sad. She, she uh, felt that she was... God had put, put her down. I mean, you can find that at the end shows that she she didn't think God was taking care of her. So she told her girls to stay here. 
And so we find that Ortha went back, but then a turn again and her daughters go their way, verse 12, and I am too old. So I'm close back to 11. And Naomi said, a, a, turned again and said, Daughter, why are you with me? Are there not yet more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? They believed that the daughter should be uh, married another son, and there, so there, but there wasn't any her. So here, Ruth still was with her, and so she goes on in verse thirteen. Would you tarry then with then until they were grown up? So if I did have children, she said, would you stay with me? Would you be able to to wait around? Here you'll be pretty old and they'll be pretty young. And uh, would you still wait around with them? Verse 14, and they lifted up their voice and they wept and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clave to her. Ruth was dedicated. She was a girl that loved her mother-in-law and she wanted to be with her. And she, verse 14, and she said, Behold, your sister, uh, Naomi said to Ruth, Your sister-in-law has gone back unto her people and her gods and returned unto your sister, return you after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you to whom uh, to return from the following after you, for whether you go... I will go, and whether you lie, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Well, that's a dedication. She, she was going to stay with her. Where you die, I'll die, and where you are buried, the Lord do to me also and more, if I ought but depart from you and me. When the, when she saw that she was steadfast-minded to go with her, and they went back. So here's a girl that shows us that she had a dedication. She was committed to be with her mother-in-law. And that's a tremendous thing to do, to have that kind of dedication. That's what God expects from us. He called us. He expects us to stay with Him. How many people, maybe that you know, I know I know a lot, that said they were going to, they were dedicated to doing this work, dedicated to being here to the end. And many, I tell you, many, many people walked away. They did not have that kind of dedication Ruth had. Then another point on being committed or commitment level that you have to really put in focus to say, I'm committed to doing this work. I'm committed to doing God's way. So point two is wholeheartedness. Not half-hearted, but wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness is the quality of being open and truthful. Everything you do has to be open. You don't hide things, but you're open. And you're truthful with what you do and what you say. John chapter 4. 
John chapter 4. And let's go to verse 24. John 4, 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So here we, we're told, we've got to be truthful. We've got to have God's spirit, but we have to be truthful in the fact that we say, I am committed, God. I'm truthful. I'm not, I'm not just saying this. I don't have a, a saying, I'm going to be truthful, but you are truthful. Second Samuel 12. Second Samuel 12. In Second Samuel 12 it says, Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all of your heart. For consider now great, how great things He has done for you. So we should sit back and consider what God has done for us, the blessings. I have said many times through the past years I've been here, God has always blessed me. Things don't sometimes seem right, but God has always blessed me. And I can tell you that's a truthful saying. I, I honestly, truthfully believe God has been there because I love Him and with all of my heart, but it's easy to be sidetracked, though. In second, in First Kings, chapter two, and read one and four. Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, "The Lord." May continue, uh, continue his word with, which he spoke unto me, saying, If your children take heed to the ways to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail you, uh, David said, a man on the throne, or God said to David, a man to sit on the throne. But the thing is, he said they have to be in truth with all their heart and their whole body, their whole being. If you say, I am committed to doing this, I am committed to being here, to being a part of this work, it has to be my whole heart. I've got to be 100% into it. I can't just be part way. I've got to do it all the way. And so David... God spoke to David. David spoke to Solomon. And Solomon, he said, you have to do it. What happened? We know that he didn't do everything properly. And and that somewhere down the line, things got all turned around and they didn't accomplish the goals they should have. 2 Kings 20, verse 3. Here. We see where it says, I beseech you, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in your sight. 
And here, Hezekiah speaking. That's who this king was, was Hezekiah. God, he told God, I, I've done this. I've walked this way. I've done these things for you. And he cried. So we want to be truthful. We have to be uh, wholehearted. Not half-hearted. We don't take it lightly. Sometimes I've seen that happen. It's, in this day and time, with all the pressure that's thrown at us from time to time, you know, people say, well, if I could only live years ago. But this is the greatest time. We're at close at the end. We have to be wholeheartedly committed to God. Not partly. It's got to be a, a desire to, 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 to hear sermons, to, to then sit down and read the Bible. It's a lot, a lot easier to sit back and watch a lot of TV. Or it's a lot easier to run back and forth different places. It's a lot harder to sit back and to be so committed that you're going to find exactly what God wanted. And that takes a wholehearted commitment. Wholeheartedly you've got to be committed to God. And that's what he's looking for. It's easy to be half-hearted, but to be wholehearted is a lot harder to do. So let's go on to point three. You want to be committed? You want to be a commitment to God? Part three would be single-minded. You can't be double-minded. You've you got to be single-minded. It's a person who has one aim or one purpose and is determined to achieve that, that goal. So you have to see, what is, what is the aim? Well, we know the aim is to be a part of the bride of Christ. Our purpose is to change our ways, to make them fit Christ's ways. And then you have to be determined with that one mindset that this is the only way. It's easy to hear all these different things going on, uh, different gods. Uh, we hear the Mormons, we have them living around us and they have their own thing. We've got the, uh, we've got the government that their, their purpose is not doing God's way. But you have been called to be a king or a priest. You've been called to be the bride of Christ. So single-mindedly, you have to say, I am committed to that. You can drift from one place to another. But are you single-minded? Is that the main purpose? Is that the main aim in your life? A lot of people had an, an aim to be rich. Others had an aim to have new houses or as I've seen in the years, to be a deacon or to be an elder, to be a pastor, to to be in charge of people, to do many things. But our aim and our purpose should be to be the bride of Christ, which means then that you've got to focus on that. Are you com are you really committed to that point? That commitment to be a part of the bride of Christ. 
Matthew chapter 6. Much of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are so important in our lives because that gives us that aim and purpose that we should follow. But here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, The light of the body is the eye. If your eye be single, the whole body shall be full of light. In other words, if you've got, if you're focused, single-minded on what God has called you to do and what God is putting in front of you, then your body's going to be filled with the light. But if your eye be evil, so you, you know, and maybe we look, if we look at evil being discarded or distracted by other things around us, our our family life, our job, uh, the, on this property. We're sometimes distracted by the the lawsuit that's thrown up against the church because they're suing, they want to take over the church. But we can't allow that to be the focus. We have to focus that God brought us here he brought you, He gave you that. So you focus on God's Word, what He's given to us. If your eye be evil, your whole body shall be full of darkness. So we let things pull us aside from study, from prayer, from faith, and trusting God. You cannot do that. No man, he says, and this was Christ speaking, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve the world and God, basically. Either can he, will he hate, or either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve, he ends it with, you can't serve God and the world. God and money. Money being the world. Pleasure. Um, cars. Places. Uh, your status in life. Uh, was it Peter who said, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life? If we let those things get in our life, then we're not single-minded. You want to single-mind. Focus on what God has said. And we've been given some direction. We've been getting told that the end is coming. We're closer today than we were ever before. Uh, I remember a sermon in 1960, probably eight, by Paul Flatt. Not much of the sermon, much of it. The one part I do remember was he was standing on the stage there in the Oddfellows Hall, and he said, "This stage, this long stage," and he walked to one side of the stage about a foot and a half two foot from the edge and said that much of the stage is history this little foot and a half is what's here for us if we focus on the fact that we have very little time left then we're going to not worry about what happened in the past except to help us not to make the same mistakes. And yes, we should go look at our mistakes and then change, but not dwell on them. We should dwell on the future, dwell on what God has said is going to happen. 
He is going to come. He's going to take and have 144 people changed. Some are already asleep. Some are still alive and awake. And he says that in Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4. That those that are sleeping, that are have kept the focus, will be changed first. In Matthew 6.33 it says, Seek you first the kingdom. So our focus, our eyes should be on what? Keep you, seek first the first thing. Get up in the morning, what do you do? What's, what's your routine? Is it seeking God? Or is there something else that comes along? Sometimes it's easy to get distracted with other things. I have found in the past, if, if I don't get down and get up and come to God and say, I need help today, I need strength, and help the congregation, help the people here. And I talked about my, my family here and my family is stretched out. But if we don't do it, if I, if something happens and distracts, am I seeking God first? Is my focus and my commitment to God, or am I lacking? So it's something to think about. What do you do first? So it says in Matthew 6, 33, Seek first God and His righteousness. Everything else will come along. I know I've been, in times past, I've been so frustrated when it didn't seem like we were going to be able to pay the bills. And you get so frustrated. And you can slip. And I've had that happen many times in the past. When you raise eight children and you wind up, maybe you, at the time, at eight children running bees. I, my daughter called me the other day and said they had a bear hit the yard and they had 200 colonies in there and over half of them were destroyed. I've had that happen. And you feel so discouraged. And you sometimes forget to seek God's help. But he says, seek God first. And everything will work out. And it does. And when you're short on money, it still will work out. I've had third tide years. It's not going to work out. Many third tide years. Many of them always worked out. So, seek God first. That's the important part. Elijah. Serving God. People were, were bouncing around. They were just helter skelter. They were believing God. They were believing, uh, all kinds of adulterous things. First Kings 18-21, Elijah brought the people together. He had all the priests of Baal, all these people come together, had them all in one spot. And he told them, choose. They, they, they created a sacrifice. All the priests of Baal, well, they, they got there and they cried and they did all kinds of things. And finally, as the evening sacrifice came up, Elijah approached the people and said, in Elijah 18.21, and Elijah came to the people and said, how long will you halt between two opinions? And that's something for us to think about. How long are we going to halt between two ways of life? There's only two ways. Herbert Armstrong preached that all through his life. Two ways. The way of God or the way of Satan. 
So how long, he said, you go into a halt, how long are you going to bounce from one point to the next point to the next point? If God is God, if God be God, follow Him. So you have to make that decision. Is there a God? You've got to be single-minded, he's saying. You have to be single-minded. Either single-minded toward God or single-minded toward Satan. But you've got to be single-minded. So if God is God, then follow God. Lest you come to that point that God says, I don't know you. You I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to you. But if Baal, then follow Baal. And the people answered him not a word because it was so scary to them because they were not single-minded, but they were double-minded. In James, we get the correction from James who says in James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You cannot be double-minded. You've got to be single-minded. You have to have a single attitude, a single way. You cannot have two ways of life. It's not going to work. It just won't work. And so we find that a single-minded man is like a wave on the sea. I mean, a double-minded man is like a wave on the sea. It just tossed back and forth and back and forth. You never know what's going to happen. But a single-minded person, you know where they're going. You know what they're thinking. You know what they're doing. A double-minded person might tell you, hey, I will do that. But if he's double-minded, he probably won't. Or I will not say those things, but he will. Or I will pay the bill, and he won't. I mean, this happens constantly. So you cannot be double-minded. That's a great admonition by, by James. Because if we, if we can't focus single-mindedly on God and God's way of life, because there are things going to pull you away. You'll be distracted. I can guarantee it. It's happened. It's happened to a lot of people. I've seen, I've seen people I thought were good, solid ministers change from keeping the Sabbath on the Sabbath to keeping Sunday for a Sabbath or doing God's way to doing another way because they were double-minded and they're not stable. They're not stable in anything they do. Point four, to be totally, completely committed to God You have to have undivided commitment. You can't have two commitments. You've got to be un, it's got to be undivided. You can't bounce around. For I am first Matthew, turn to Matthew chapter 10. Undivided commitment. Matthew chapter 10. For I am come, verse 35. For I am come to set a man at vengeance against his father, and a daughter against his uh, mother, and a daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. A man's foes shall be his own enemies as a household. So you can't have a household that's divided. 
You have to have a household that is together. Together in, in, in the church, we have to believe the same things. We have basic doctrines that we all believe, but they sometimes change. He that loves father or mother, Christ said in verse 37, more than me is not worthy of me. So you can't say I'm... It's not saying that you can't love your family. It says you can't love them more than me. So you have to be ready to commit to Christ. If the rest of your family goes someplace else, you still have to stay with what God has opened your mind. He brought each one of us out here. He handpicked us. He's handpicked everybody. In whatever group they're in, God's put them there for a purpose. But we can't, we can't be more attuned to our personal family or our church, I mean our, our work family or our local friends more than we are to God. Christ has to be the first and foremost part of our life. We cannot be divided by that way. Verse 38, And he that takes not his cross or stake and follows me is not worthy of me. We have to be willing to. Uh, Stephen, remember I gave that example last time. Stephen carried that stake. He told these people, I'm not divided. You know, I trust God. David trusted God. He wasn't divided. If you can't take what God has put to you, you have to, you cannot turn back to this world. You just can't do that. So you take his stake and follow me is not worthy of me, Christ said. If you're not willing to be undivided, uh, committed, not uh, unreversed in, in emphasis, in, in enthusiasm, so you got to have the enthusiasm to be a part of what God is doing. He that finds his life shall lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Sometimes we're going to turn around. We're just going to want to do some other things. We cannot, we have to concentrate on the fact that we cannot commit to pieces of God's truth. Okay, I can do this much, but I can't do that. We can't have pieces of the truth. We can't be committed to the Sabbath, but going out and eat on the Sabbath. We can't be committed to the holy days, but then taking the holy days off and doing whatever we want to do. You can't be committed to pieces of our of ourselves to Christ and then hold back other parts of it. I can take that lightly. He's called us to be, to give ourselves completely without turning back. Too many times people turn back. And that's just not very good to turn back. We have to love Him fully above everything and everyone else. So we can't take God's way of life, our loyalty, our commitment rather, because I say loyalty because point 
six, uh, five is loyalty. Are we loyal to God? If we're committed to God, we have to be loyal to that commitment. It's like I brought out earlier. You can't halfway do it. You've got to be loyal to what you say. And you've made that statement, I'm going to be a part of God's way of life, so you've got to be loyal to it. Turn over to First Samuel. First Samuel 24. Verse, uh, here David and his men, and we know that Saul, King Saul was after to kill David, been after him for a long time. David was anointed king. And Saul was, I guess, jealous. He, he had left, he actually turned back from following God. And so, here we find David and his men in a cave, and King Saul comes into that cave to relieve himself. And David's men said to him, uh, The Lord forbid that I should do this. These men wanted David to kill him. You're supposed to be king anyway. Get out there and do it. Let's get this job done. But David showed his loyalty to God when he said, I couldn't do that. The Lord forbid, David said, that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. David's loyalty was to God, not to his men, and yet he was very loyal to his men. But here David said, I am truly loyal to God. This is God's anointed. Today, how do we go to somebody that God's put in charge of a group and put them down? We don't have that right to, to take a person out you know, this little group here, Daryl's in charge. Who can take Daryl out? God. Not me. Not you. God. And himself. So, where is our loyalty to God? It's not whether we're loyal to, to a man. Are we loyal to God? David stayed the servants with the, with the words and Snuff them not to, or suffer them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose out out of the cave and went away. And David rose up after him and, and told him, Hey, I could have taken you out. I'm not here, your enemy. David showed loyalty to God above everything else. He didn't, he wasn't partial. He didn't commit part of his life to God and say, Okay, I'm king. I'll, I'll back. I'll go back on that. I'll take the guy out. No, David showed us loyalty.
there's another instance, and that's Mordecai, Esther. Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 2. Esther, chapter 2, verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's, house, uh, king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, uh, and he gives their names of, of whose which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hands on the king as a source. And the thing was known to Mordecai who told it to Esther the queen. And Esther considered, uh, certified the, to the king that Mordecai's name. And when the inquest was made of a matter, it was found out that these two were hung on a tree that is written in the book of the Kings of Chronicles. What, what happened there? Mordecai overheard this. He was loyal to the king. But he's also loyal to his truth. You know, one of the things he has to be truthful in what he does, he told it to the king. So he was loyal. He could have let it go on. Get rid of that king. Maybe we'll get another one that'll be better shape and won't be put down. But no. What happened to that loyalty that Mordecai showed? We know later on at the close of the book, that Mordecai was honored for what he did. Oh, it didn't happen right away. How much time went on, we don't know. But it was time went on. But because he was loyal, God repaid the loyalty. And he'll do that same thing to each one of us. He will repay the loyalty that we do for him some way, somewhere. And it's always been that way. I have always been blessed for being loyal to God. And I know that He does it. He is a God of love and great mercy. Point six. Devotion. I know that we could go back and say Ruth had devotion toward what she did too. But devotion we can see in Mark chapter 1 verse 35. Christ's devotion to God. He trusted God 100%. All through John, the first chapters we read, Christ said, not of what I do. It's not what I want to do. It's not what I say. It's I do what the Father says, and I say what the Father says. So here in Mark 1.35, it says, In the morning, Christ rising early up, a great while before day, went out, departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed. He was devoted to doing things God's way. His commitment level was, not me, not my will, not my way. And we know that on the day that he was going to be hung, or tied to the, mailed to the stake, he cried out to the Father and said, take this this thing from me. But then he said, nevertheless, not my will. This is his devotion. 
not my will, but yours, Father. So are we that devoted to, to God? If we're not as devoted as Christ, how can we have a deep commitment? Our commitment level will, will be shaky. We'll be double-minded then again. So here he's saying that he was so devoted, he would get up very early. He would seek God's help first. Psalms chapter 5. Here David speaking and crying out to God. He says, Psalm 5 verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken to the voice of my cry, my King, my God. For unto you will I pray. My voice shall be near in the morning. O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto you, and I will look up. David was devoted to doing things God's way. David was blessed many times. But he was devoted to God. And, you know, he went on to be king. Psalm 55, verse 17. Here shows again David's devotion. Psalm 55, verse 17. He says in verse 17, Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. That's a pretty good devoted God. David was so devoted to God, he knew he needed his help. Another one was Daniel. He said, he prayed to God all the time. And they passed a law that if anybody prayed to anybody but the king, they should be thrown in a lion's den. What did David do? He prayed to God because God was his focus. God was his single-minded thing. And yet they threw him, in the, threw him into the lion's den. David, uh, Daniel was very much loyal to God. And he was protected. Psalm 130, verse 6. Again, David speaking. says, My soul waits for the Lord more than they that wait for the morning. I, I say more than they that wait for the morning. So here, he was so devoted to God. People can't wait for the morning to come. That's something else to do. No, David wanted God. He was so committed to God. The final point. Point seven. A vow or an undertaking. A vow is a solemn promise or undertaking. A solemn promise to do something. God has been committed to all of us. He's made us promises. In Luke 24, verse 49, Luke 24:49, it says, And behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you. For Christ is telling the people, I'm going to promise, but tarry you. This is before, you know, he's already he's been resurrected. Before he left them, he said, tarry you. Wait here. Stay here in Jerusalem 
Be committed to doing what I tell you. Stay here until you be endowed with the power on high. So God made a promise through Christ that if they waited, those disciples would wait there in Jerusalem and on Pentecost that year, what happened? They received the Holy Spirit because they waited for the promise that God gave them. And He gave His promise. God holds true to His promises. Galatians 4, verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac's was are the children of promise. So we're just like Isaac. We are today children of that same promise. A promise to be part of the bride. A promise to be a part of the family of God. A promise that God has given to us. 1 John 2.25 Write some of these down. And, and this is the promise that God has promised us. Even eternal life. That's the promise God's given to you. He makes these promises. And He fulfills. He's committed to doing what He's doing. You know, when we were baptized, if you really want to think about it rightly, when you were baptized, you made a solemn promise to live like Christ. Remember what they said before they shoved you under the water. They held you down there long enough, you wouldn't come back up. But you said, do you accept Emmanuel to be your husband, to be your leader, to be the one that will direct your thinking, that you will follow him all the way? You made that promise. It's a promise that you have to now be able to keep. If you are totally, completely committed to God, you have to keep that promise. Acts 2.38 Peter, speaking to the people, said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the of the Holy Spirit. So here he's telling us to repent. So we were told to, before we were baptized, we were told to look into your life. There's this way of life. There's this new way of life. You should have been counseled that way. There's the way you've been living and there's this new way. Before you're baptized. And he said, repent, first of all, then be baptized. So you have to look and say, okay, that I didn't want to do. So I'm making this promise. When I get baptized, I am promising, I am vowing to God that I will change what I've been doing. And then, you are given the earnest of God's Spirit. Romans Chapter 3. I mean, sorry. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Romans 6, verse 3. Here Paul speaking to us, to the church, church today, the church from that time forward, the church 
of the people that are striving to do God's way. Romans 6, verse 3, Know you not that as many of you were baptized unto Christ, were baptized into His death? Do you understand that you took on His death? He died for you. That's what He's saying. He paid the penalty for your sins. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into into death. We put the bad, everything we did, we put it behind us. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So we said, I accepted, I, I looked back and I said, that's bad way, I want to do the right way. I will do this. I will change my way. And I will walk in a newness of life, a new way of life. Not just a religion, it's a way of life. We call it our religion, but it is God's way. It is a way of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of Christ's death, we shall also be in the likeness of Christ's resurrection. So we come out of that water no longer to live the old way. We have to stop slipping backward. We have to stop having the, allowing Satan to come over there and entice us because he's the greatest deceiver that ever walked. And he can throw things at you and if you're not attuned with Christ, he can pull you aside. So we then, in the likeness of Christ's death, now we must walk in the newness of life, a new way of life, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, the way we used to live. We have to get rid of that. That the body of sin might be destroyed. The things that we did, God says, I will wipe them out. Get rid of them. Now we believe that now now if we believe if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So we if we believe that we put away the old way of life, then we will live the new way of life with Christ. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, died no more. Death has no more dominion over him. And the old way of life cannot have any more dominion over us. If we say we are committed to God, we can't allow our old way to take back what we used to do. We've got to put that out. We can't, we can't allow the old ways to slip back in. Too many people have done that over the years. For if that he died, he died unto sin once, but that he lives, he lives unto God. We have to do that same thing. We've made a vow, we must live to God. Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead in deeds unto sin, 
but alive to God through Emmanuel our Lord. We are living and allowing Christ to live in us. I say I'm committed. I say I'm going to do it God's way. Do I do it? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey it to the lust thereof. We have to come to that point to say, I am totally, 100%, completely committed to God. I've given you seven points. To be, to be dedicated through dedicated through wholeheartedness, not single-heartedness, not double-heartedness, not double standards, single-minded. That This is the only one way. This is a way of life. And so you've got to be single-minded to that. You can't be divided. You can't say, I'll do part of it today and do something else tomorrow. You have to be loyal. Loyal to each other and loyal to God. As Matthew 25 said, if you do it to one of the least, and sometimes we, 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 we don't look at the least person, somebody that we just count as a nothing. But he said, if you do that to the least, if you're not loyal to me, to even to the least person, you've done it to me. You're not loyal to me either. If we can't be loyal to each other, how can we be loyal to God? And we have to be devoted to God. Marriage, you're devoted to your husband, your wife, your kids, everything. But it has to be a devotion to God. And we made a vow in our life. God doesn't take it lightly when somebody breaks the vows that he gave. If you made a vow, you have to do and commit that vow. There have been examples of one where the man vowed to do something and if the first thing that came out of his house, he would give to God. He made a vow. I know we've tried to justify that. We've tried to say he didn't have to, to kill his daughter. But he made a vow and he had to keep that vow. God does not take it kindly or easily if we make a vow. So, what does it mean to me to be totally committed? Can I say that I am totally committed to doing what God's given me to do? In my everyday life, am I totally, honestly, truthfully, loyally, devotedly, single-mindedly Am I that committed to God?